0: God is good all the, time. all the time. Good evening, everybody. I hate to break up people greeting and like having fun together, but I'm going to be that guy. Good evening. How are you? You're fine? Good, Josh. All right. Praise the Lord. My name is Kevin Suttle. I am the Director of Adult Discipleship here at Christ Church, and it is truly an honor to be with you tonight to all of our friends who are joining us online, welcome. We greatly appreciate it. We know it is a special thing that you take time out of your home life to be able to join us online. So thank you. Uh, we are entering into Christmas and it is a beautiful, beautiful thing. Uh, one of the things that we do here at Christchurch around Christmas time specifically is try to bless others. We have a number of different initiatives that help with that, and one of them is the Project Christmas Cheer Initiative. And this is a way that we can go to bring gifts to people who may not receive a gift at one of the local nursing homes. So if that's something that you would like to be a part of, head out right there into the cafe, and you can find information about that, but it is truly a blessing for those people in need. Tonight we begin a four-week examination of the first four chapters of the book of Matthew. We are looking at the beginning of Jesus and his ministry and his life there in the book of Matthew. Now, this will be a little bit different than what you may have come to expect from Reverend Shane. Uh, As you know, Reverend Shane gets right down in the weeds. He looks at everything verse by verse, kind of takes you directly through the trail and all of that. I'm not going to be doing quite that. I'm also not going to be this like 30,000-foot flyover where we're just kind of saying, yep, the book of Matthew's great, moving on. We're not doing that either. Uh, kind of in the middle. So in some ways, it's like we're going to kind of jump on the helicopter. We're going to hover up to 1,000 feet, and then we're going to kind of stop, take a look around at times. We're going to go slow. We're going to go fast. But we're going to kind of have this in-between in the air. So if you consider Reverend Train your trail guide, that's not me. I'm more of like a tour guide, okay? I can give you some stuff, and that's going to be cool, but I'm not going to be able to give you the same level of detail. Ultimately, though, we're going to fly over everything, and we're going to look at the scenery God gives us. So with that, I want you to hear this again. My intention for you is to not hear every single little detail that we might cover here in these four chapters in Matthew. If you are looking to do that, that's great, and we have many resources and opportunities for you here at the church. Instead, I want to help paint this picture of how great God is in the ministry and mission of Jesus Christ through these four weeks, and then hopefully whet your appetite to go look for yourself. And so if you need help with that, of course you can always reach out to me here at the church. Now, before we really dive in, before we take off, I think it's important that you know some things about me. Being as how you were entrusting me to actually guide you through the Bible, I think you should know a little bit about my background and why on some level I'm not just some crazy person standing up here on a stage teaching about stuff. Uh, also, there's this whole thing, some of you who know me, I don't like to fly, it's just a weird deal, I'm, I, just, I had a real bad experience, and so I like to know, for instance, that the pilot I'm traveling with is, like, qualified. <laughs> I have enough anxiety, I don't need extra. So, a couple of things. First and foremost, uh, I am very, very passionate about the Word of God, very passionate. The Bible has changed my life in very powerful ways. It has really changed who I am. And for those of you who've known me for a while, you can testify to that. I'm not quite the same person I used to be, and I hope and continue to change over the years. And all of that is because of the saving grace of Christ through the Word of God. Okay? Second, I don't have all the answers. I think that's pretty obvious for those of you who actually know me, but I do not have all the answers. And I say that not as an excuse, but as a reason to say, no man will ever have all the answers. No matter how hard we try, no matter how much we study, how much we learn, how deep we want to know the word of God, no man will ever have all of the answers that only God can provide. And it is dangerous to look at any one person, pastor, preacher, etc., and think that they could or even should have all of the answers. That's just going to lead you astray. We have to individually get into the Bible, we have to individually seek out the Lord for ourselves, and we have to actually test things. And so in that, that's why I say I don't know everything. If you expect me to know everything, I'm sorry I'm going to let you down every day of the week. (laughs) So... Some people, of course, are better guides than others. Some of us are still learning. And that is my third point. Uh, I am very much still in the process of learning. Uh, I'm currently enrolled in seminary for a master's in biblical studies. I'm doing my best. Um, yeah, pray for me. Finals are next week. <laughs> so, but I, uh, I do firmly, firmly, firmly believe the moment we stop learning is the moment we start dying. And that sounds a little extreme, but I believe it to be true. When you stop, not slow down. Slowing down can be good. When you stop, bad things happen. And more than anything, I don't ever want to fly with somebody who's apathetic. That's just a whole other deal. So fourth and finally, um, I'm called to this. Passion is a beautiful thing excitement is a beautiful thing, a sense of adventure is a beautiful thing, and those are all really good reasons to want to give the Word of God to other people, but it can't just be about that stuff. Uh, There is a calling that comes to this, and it's something that myself, my beautiful wife and I, our family has prayed through for years, and to know that I am called by the Lord is, um, it's a mission. It's part of a personal mission in my life to help bring the Word of God to you. And so this is something that I would be doing kind of no matter what at this point in my life because this is something that the Lord has placed on my heart. And that's huge. It's not just a job. It will never be just a job. It will not even just be a passion. It's something that I am called to by God. And until he releases me, I'm going to do it with joy and I'm going to do it with excitement. So there, as they say, are my credentials. Now, kind of that we got some of this pre-flight stuff all taken for are care of, let's go ahead, let's get in the air, take a look at the Gospel of Matthew. The Gospel of Matthew, uh, as most of you know, is the first book in the New Testament. And like probably many of you, I'm curious, how many of you read Matthew as like your first book in the Bible? Anybody? Usually it's going to be Matthew or John. It's pretty common. Or how many of you read Genesis? Because you're like, start at the beginning, right? Yeah, yeah how far did you get? Numbers? Ish, somewhere in there? Yeah, yeah, did that too. (laughs) Maybe some. So Matthew is the first book in the New Testament, and it's the first of the three synoptic gospels. Uh, Synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And synoptic simply meaning synopsis, okay? So it's kind of all-encompassing, right? It takes a look at the life and ministry and testimony of Jesus. That's what they mean when they say the synoptic gospels, right? Now, one of the fascinating things is, We're pretty certain, or scholars mostly agree, that Matthew was not the first book of the Bible written. It was actually, likely, Mark. Uh, And we know this because Matthew and Luke specifically quote Mark more than any other book. And so, even though it comes first chronologically, probably not the first one written. Now, as far as authorship is concerned, we're pretty certain that the author of the book of Matthew was Matthew the apostle, um, the tax collector, right? Um, That's pretty likely, but not 100%. We don't know for certain because he doesn't claim authorship inside of the the gospel itself. So we don't know exactly. However, even if tomorrow we found out through some new archaeology or whatever that it was some other Matthew that would not change a single thing for me. And here's the reason why. This is the word of God, not the word of Matthew, okay? Yeah, cool, Matthew wrote it, or some guy named Matthew, or some other guy named who knows what. That is not the part that's important. The important part is that this was written by God, then penned through the Spirit to us as his mission. And so that is the most important piece to this. Now, another important aspect to the Gospel of Matthew here is who this was written to. This was written to a Jewish audience, not to a Gentile audience like you would read with uh, Paul's letters, for instance. And that is really important because now we're getting into context, our cultural context, okay? The Jewish cultural life was very, very different from everybody else in Roman life. Very, very different. And some of these contextual pieces really matter, and we'll kind of touch on those in a second. First one of those that matters is chronology. Um, In Hebrew or in in traditional Jewish writing, they did not write chronologically. So if you were looking at the book of Matthew as like, this happened on Sunday, then Monday, then Tuesday, then Wednesday sort of thing, that's just not how this works. And so we know that it's actually broken up in these multiple sections And all of these sections are there to form the same point, and that is Jesus is the Messiah and he is the new and greater Moses. That's a whole other important thing that we'll get into a little bit later. So this cultural context, right, is huge. So is there anybody here who's not from the St. Louis area, like originally? Okay, anybody from like another country? Okay? No. Anybody from a wildly different part of the United States than we are in here? Okay? So, think about it like this. Think about it like you are coming from uh, southern Louisiana out in the bayous, right? And then you go to Manhattan. Oh. Culture context matters. Okay? This is the kind of stuff, we think about it, we know it innately, but we don't read it when we open the Bible. And without those pieces, we're missing quite a bit. And so in this way, for the gospel author to say that Jesus is greater than Moses, whoa, like that's rough. I mean, you're making a big, big, bold, outrageous, outrageous claim. Now, along those lines, have you ever had somebody... Come to you and say something just completely crazy that was like one of those big, bold, outrageous claims. Yeah, I'm guilty of that sometimes, I admit it. Um, so, I grew up in a family that likes food. Uh, we're not like, we're foodies, but we're not like highbrow foodies, you know what I mean? We just like food. We like fried chicken and pie and like human food. And so, um, we, I'm serious. So we grew up, and we have some really good cooks in our family, and one of the really, really, really good cooks in our family uh, was my Aunt Marilyn. Uh, My Aunt Marilyn was an amazing baker. Um, If any of you remember in downtown Belleville, Marilyn's Pie Pantry, yes, thank you, that's my Aunt Marilyn. And so my Aunt Marilyn was amazing, she was a sweetheart, and every single birthday I got a coconut cream pie and a banana cream pie because those were my two favorites. And they looked way better than that. But they were like this big and that round and they were just so good. Oh man, they were so awesome. So I was, uh, during this time I had had a birthday and so I'd had some pie and one of my friends, uh, I was bragging to about these pies, right? And he was gonna come over to my place and I'm like, hey, you gotta try this. These are the best things in the world. It is just Incredible. So he comes over, and I cut him a a slice of pie, and he takes a bite, and he's like, yeah, I mean, it's all right. I've had better. (laughs) And you know when, like, the fuse snaps right in your head? That happened. And so I, like, ripped the pie out of his disgraceful, grubby hands and took it back because he was just ungrateful and ungenerous, and I ate the pie myself. Because that was my pie, and he made me so mad that day. That was 25 years ago. I'm still working through it. okay? <laughs> like, still makes me mad, right? So well, not exactly like this, but this is kind of the idea I'm getting at. When you make such an offensive statement to people, this is the kind of stuff that Matthew was saying to the Jewish audience. These people would have not only been offended, they would have been deeply offended. And this is the cultural context that we're getting into when we look at scriptures. And this context really, really, really matters. So, as your tour guide for tonight, we are going to go ahead. We're going to dive into the book of Matthew. And again, I want you to realize like we're going to slow down at certain points. We're going to speed up at certain points. And we're going to actually take a look at the scripture probably in a way that most of you aren't accustomed to when we look at Matthew. Matthew 1 also holds Jesus' birth account, and we're going to spend most of our time not there, but on the lineage of Jesus, because background really, really matters. Verse 1, this is a record of the ancestors of Jesus the Messiah, a descendant of David and of Abraham. Right out of the gate, Matthew comes out swinging. These are three very, very bold claims right off the bat. We're in verse 1, okay? <laughs> We're just starting. So claim number one, Jesus is the Messiah. That holds significant weight, okay? There's no beating around the bush here. Jesus is not just a prophet or a good guy or even a revolutionary. Jesus is the Messiah. And in the Hebrew, this means the anointed one, mean the chosen one that God has picked. And so now we're getting into theology and all kinds of stuff. But again, the context here matters. The Messiah would be the one that the people of, of Judea and Israel have been waiting for, for centuries. They've been praying for this Savior, this person to come and to save them not only from a history of persecution, but also from the Romans at that present time. And so this Messiah now is here and Matthew is making this claim like, no, here he is. We know who this is. This is a huge, huge claim. So claim number two, Jesus is a descendant of David. This second claim is important because it also digs into the pieces of Jewish history. It gets into that culture, but it also takes a really strong look at prophecy. And so... Jesus, in order to be the Messiah, had to come from the lineage of David. He had to. It was prophesied. We see that actually come from Jeremiah 23, 5-6, and God says it in this message. For the time is coming, says the Lord, when I will raise up a righteous descendant from King David's line. He will be a king who rules with wisdom. He will do what is just and right throughout the land, and this will be his name the Lord is our righteousness, and in that day, Judah will be saved, and Israel will live in safety. So in other words, there is no Messiah unless he's coming from the line of David, period. Like, And the people would have known this. They would have had this bred in. And so that's why throughout history, there would be people who would rise up, become kind of like cultural icons, and they would claim to be the Messiah, and then people would start fact-checking them and find out, well, He's not in the lineage of David. Forget him. And boom, just as fast as they rose up, they went down. Claim number three, Jesus is descendant of Abraham. So now, again, we're looking at uh, fulfillment of prophecy, right? There's an important part to this. We see that in um, Romans uh, as the father of all nations, or excuse me, where Abraham's considered the father of all people. And so then as Jesus is this fulfillment of prophecy, there's also this kind of like celebrity vibe going on here. Uh, Abraham would have been looked to as one of the highest, uh, kind of most revered among all of the Jewish people. And now the author is claiming like, yeah, Jesus is right up there with him. And that really matters. It gives him incredible clout. So we have these three big, bold claims. Again, you have these prophecies that are now checked and kind of out of the way. And with this now, we can actually move into the lineage of Jesus. And so he doesn't start off by saying, oh yeah, he's this and this and this. He's saying, no, Jesus is this and this and this, and now let's take a look at where he comes from. So, let's get at it. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac, the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Perez was the father of Hezron. Hezron was the father of Ram. All right, as I said, Abraham is the spiritual father, so to speak, of all Jewish Christian people. He and his wife, Sarah, they were promised this multitude of children by God, which was answered by the birth of Isaac, right? Now, if you guys remember your Old Testament stuff... Isaac was then to be sacrificed on the mountain by Abraham, and instead an angel stopped his hand from killing his kid, and then we get to kind of move on with a bit of salvation history. So, thank God for that. After significant amounts of trauma counseling, Isaac goes on. He gets to marry Rebecca at the age of 40. That's pretty cool. Rebecca herself was an answer to prayer and a great comforter to Isaac. And like Isaac's mother, Sarah, she struggled to have children of her own. Again, through the power of prayer, Rebecca becomes pregnant with the twins, Jacob and Esau. Now, you might remember, again, Old Testament, that Jacob, or excuse me, Rebecca loved Jacob more than Esau, right? And then she helped him to steal his firstborn rights from his twin brother by dressing in goatskins and lying through his teeth. So, ticked off, Esau threatens to kill his brother, and Jacob skips town, (laughs) You tracking? Good, we got a long way to go. All right, God's plan's perfect, right? We say it, but do we say it in the midst of stuff like this? When we we look at our lives, when we look at the lives of the people in the Bible, we need to also recognize this plan, no matter how weird we think it is, God's plan is still perfect. So Jacob travels across town to go see his uncle Laban, meets the beautiful Rachel, he falls in love with her, and after a seven-year work order, he finalizes the marriage to Rachel, except for his uncle Laban lied, and instead marries the other oldest sister, Leah. So after another seven-year work order, he finally gets to marry Rachel, and things get to move on. Interestingly, though, in the lineage of Jesus, it doesn't go through Rachel, it goes through Leah. I don't know what that's all about. That's out of my pay grade. I find it fascinating. So after Judah is born, things get crazy, uh, more crazy than they have been, and kind of turns into this like ancient equivalent of a daytime soap opera. Uh, It gets kind of like real bad for a while. So when it's all said and done, we've got Jacob. He has 12 sons with four different women, and after a big misunderstanding with Uncle Laban, Jacob, his wives... And his children all head back home and try and mend the relationship with his brother Esau, which they do. And along the way, Jacob wrestles with God, and God changes his name from Jacob to Israel. Now you still tracking? (laughs) Okay, so the sons. Those 12 sons, they become the 12 tribes of Israel. Okay? Judah, the oldest, becomes the leader among his brothers And Judah is also the one responsible for not allowing his little brother Joseph to get killed by his other brothers when he's like, my dreams are better than your reality. Okay, So Joseph, Technicolor, Dreamcoat kind of thing, all that stuff. Instead, Judah convinces his brothers to sell him into slavery. And now you've made it through like Genesis. (laughs) When people say that the Bible is boring, They've never read the Bible, okay? We're not even to the bad stuff yet. Like, this is still, like, PG-ish, okay? So, now we get to Judah. Judah has this crazy life, and it actually gets pretty weird. But we need to go way forward into Revelation. I want to read this scripture to you from Revelation 5.5. But one of the 24 elders said to me, Stop weeping. Look, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the heir to David's throne, has won the victory. He is worthy to open the scroll and its seven seals. Of course, this scripture is talking about Jesus. But remember that. The lion of the tribe of? Okay. So back to Judah. At some point after selling his brother Joseph into slavery, he heads off, makes his own way, gets married, and has his own son named Ur. Ur is wicked, so God killed him. Poof. Gone. Then Ur's brother Onan, he wouldn't honor his wicked brother by having a child with his late brother's wife, so God kills him too. (laughs) Dead. All right, two brothers down. So Tamar, probably crazy at this point because she was the one that they were supposed to have a kid with and and all that stuff. So she pretends to be a prostitute by disguising herself as a prostitute. She sleeps with Judah. (laughs) Right, and then out of that situation, we get the twins, Perez and Zara, and Perez is here as the part of lineage of Jesus Christ. And congratulations, we made it to that point in verse 3. <laughs> so you think your life's messed up, right? <laughs> yeah, this is the crazy thing about the Bible. When you start really studying the Bible and you start looking at the background and the history of the people that are involved in the Bible, we find messes. Okay, and that is important to understand. We don't find perfection or anything even close to that. So at the end of last year, um, my wife and I, she's in the back somewhere, hanging back there. She's awesome. So my wife and I, our family, we decided to move back out to the country. Uh, we've been very blessed. We loved our time here in Belleville, uh, but we moved out to a spot of land between Millstadt and Belleville. It's about five acres. It's awesome. It's this big, beautiful rectangle of land. There's trees lining one side, a stream going down, and it's just, it's perfect. And so over the last year, we've been kind of, you know, getting reaccustomed to country life. It's a little bit different than being in a neighborhood. And uh, one of the things that I did right at the beginning of our spring is I went down and I trimmed a bunch of our trees, right? Because we have a number of trees on the property, and I wanted to cut off all the dead limbs. I wanted to get rid of all the stuff, at least so it wasn't too bad before the storms came. And then in spring, uh, when the storms did hit, we still got a bunch of leaves down. We got a bunch of, you know, limbs and twigs and all that stuff. And so the kids helped pick up a bunch of stuff, and I went out there, and I was cleaning things up. And I remember as I was, like, picking up all these limbs, it was crazy, because you'd have a twig that wasn't but this big and that big around, and then from the same tree, you'd have a six-inch log kind of thing coming off of there. And... With every single one of them, there'd be a scar, there'd be some damage, or there'd be a little bit of fungus or disease or something like that. And I kept expecting, I guess, to find like a normal, healthy-looking, perfect tree limb, and I just never did. And then I looked up, and I looked in the trees themselves, and I never found a perfect tree limb, right? When we look at our lineage, when we look at our heritage, sometimes we want to look for a Perfection. We want to try and find somewhere that there's nothing wrong with it. And I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but I don't I don't think any of us can find that. And if we can't find it, and especially if Christ can't find it, why would we continue looking for that? I mean, I've got friends and family members in in our lives and our lineage that are kind of catastrophic, and then I have people who are saints and just lovely and amazing. But we're all just that tiny bit flawed. And so as you look into your own life, as you look into your own lineage, maybe you're the first root that's going to take hold to actually bring faith to generations of your family following you. Or maybe you're the result of generations of family who've poured into you. Both are good. Both are truly, truly good. But what we need to not do is sit there and focus on the bad. It's easy to sit there and overfocus on, well, this isn't perfect, or this person ruined this or that or the other. If Jesus went back and looked at his lineage and, and was like, man, we need to do better, not gonna get very far. And I hate to say it, it doesn't get any better after verse three. So moving on. From Perez to Hezron, Ram to Aminadab, from Nashon to Solomon, and finally to Boaz, the person who actually stands out in this scripture is Rahab. Rahab, as you guys may remember, she was the one who snuck the Israelite spies and saved them, and it ultimately led to the entire city of Jericho being overtaken. And so what I find fascinating about Rahab, we know that she was a prostitute, and in the book of James 2.25, she is declared righteous. A prostitute declared righteous. Think about how countercultural that is all by itself. Now we have Boaz was the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed was the father of Jesse. Jesse, the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother was Bathsheba, the widow of Uriah. Solomon was the father of Rehoboam. So as we move from the generation of Boaz to Rehoboam, each of these characters specifically has an important place in the Bible. Uh, If you haven't read the story of Ruth and Boaz, I highly recommend you do. It's a beautiful testimony of the love between a mother and her daughter-in-law, and then a man and a woman specifically. When Ruth and Boaz are married, they have Obed, and we don't know a whole lot about Obed, but really what he's most famous for, he's the grandpa of King David. That's really kind of what matters. And so now we move into the story of King David briefly. We're going to kind of pause here, we'll hover here a minute. Now, We could spend weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks just on David alone. Uh, David was incredible. Uh, As we know, David brought down the uh, giant, the Goliath of Gath. He stood fast and faithful to King Saul when King Saul was even trying to kill him. He overcame the enemies of Israel, and he was known as a worshiper unlike any other person in the Bible. I love that. He was a man after God's own heart. We see that in 1 Samuel. However, David had a lot of failures. (laughs) Yeah, he, he did. He had a lot of failures. He had one of his inner guards. So like one of his closest guards murdered after he had an affair with his wife. Not great. And we see this specifically mentioned in the lineage of Christ. Notice that it says the widow of Uriah. I think there's an important point here when we look at the Bible, okay? The Word of God doesn't pull punches, guys. It's not going to sugarcoat things. The Bible is not cleaned up, perfected, and sterilized so that it doesn't offend us. That's not how it works. The Bible will offend us. It will specifically offend the sin in us. And the Bible should offend the sin inside of us. The Bible will offend the gossip inside of us. The Bible will offend the lust and the adultery inside of us. The Bible will offend the dishonor or the disrespect that we place towards others. It will offend the fact that we don't love our enemies, and it will offend anything that is counter to Christ himself. And it should. We should never get so comfortable with ourselves that the Bible doesn't offend us in some way. It is only through Christ and Christ alone that we can look and know that it's the grace we receive from him that keeps us on the right track. It's not by us. And this is so important. Too often we have people who want to either apologize for the Bible for being too harsh or want to apologize for the sins in our lives, and that is not the way to do it. I am nothing without Christ. Nothing. And no matter how hard I try, I will never be good enough. It is only through Christ that we can ever be made good enough. Because it's him who makes us righteous. It's not through us. So when people say the Bible offends you, then I would say, okay, read it again. (laughs) I don't know what to tell you. Because why wouldn't it offend us? It will offend the sin inside of us. And so the only way we can do that, where we can come to the end, is to live in eternity with the Lord and to be able to look at it and be properly made in righteousness through him. So that's, that's a soapbox that I will step off of for a second. In the case of King David here, his blessing comes from his failure through his son, King Solomon. David made a tremendous failure. David had one of his closest murdered, he slept with his wife, they were supposed to have a son, ultimately God challenged him, rebuked him, and that son didn't, pass, or didn't live, and then ultimately after that we see King Solomon rise up. Solomon in many, many, many ways was a blessing, he was considered the wisest man to ever live. Also the author of three of my favorite books of the Bible, we've got Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Solomon, these are incredible, incredible books. Without David's mess, we wouldn't have this collective wisdom of Solomon. So here's where I would say, kind of as your tour guide, I would recommend go check out this story. This is 2 Samuel 12. Go read how David is brokenhearted. Go read how Nathan the prophet rebukes him and, and pushes this on him and see how you get this point of tragedy turn into a point of joy. Because without some of these details, you're missing out on the Bible. And that tragedy, that beauty, it's a, it's a beautiful thing for us, isn't it? And thinking about our own lives. We all have tragedy, and we all have beauty. We have some moments that are just truly incredible, and then we have others that are just a gut-wrenching nightmare. And that, I think, is the point that we see, not just in our lives, but in the lives of these biblical characters. So moving forward, we're going to move at lightning speed now. So we've got Rehoboam all the way down through. Out of the kings of Israel, only one really stands out for being good (laughs) and faithful to God. And that's King Hezekiah. Uh, The other kings, some of them had up and down relationships with God. Others were just terrible. And uh, God usually smites them at some point. Uh, How many of you guys are in the walk through the word with us the read through the Bible? Yeah, we will be continuing on the New Testament in 2024. It's coming fast, guys. So if you were waiting and worrying about that, it's coming. Uh, But you guys should recognize some of these things from our Old Testament. Now, unfortunately, Hezekiah's faithfulness basically doesn't translate most of the way down. Uh, You have a number of evil kings. You have a number that were assassinated. And then ultimately, God kind of cleans house until Jehoiachin, which then brings back some righteousness to the kingdom of Israel, and then the people rebel, and it all falls off a cliff again. (laughs) So from verse 12 to 16, we're finally back in some names we recognize, uh, and some that we don't. You might kind of see a few that we do, uh, if we can move on to 12 through 19, or 12 to 16. So we've got Joseph, Mary, and Jesus. That's okay. Um, We have others that we don't really know about, and that's because we just don't have any history on these people. Okay. So now we are finally to the end of the lineage of Christ. (laughs) So 42 generations in total, three sets of 14, and we go from Abraham all the way down. We have prophets, we have kings, we have warriors, murderers, prostitutes, the wise, the faithful, and the fallen, all together in the lineage of Christ. And when I look back on this lineage, what I don't find is perfect people right? And I asked myself that question, like, why? Why is it then when we see this lineage, why didn't God write in 42 generations of saints, of perfect people? And one of the reasons I think that that didn't happen is why it's just not true. It's not what actually happened. This in some ways is an apologetic for the Bible. If everything was perfect, would you believe it? based on what you see in your world? Would you really believe that Jesus came from 42 generations of perfect saints? Man, I'd struggle with that. I really, really would. And really deep in our heart, we know that we can't relate to perfect people. It's a challenge for us. We don't have that same gifting. That's why some people struggle with Christ himself. Well, he was sinless. I can't relate to that. I get that. I understand it. But that doesn't mean that we should move away from those things. So now, we finally get to one of the most bold claims in the entire Bible. This is Matthew 1.18. So this is how Jesus the Messiah was born. His mother Mary was engaged to be married to Joseph, but before the marriage took place, while she was still a virgin, she became pregnant through the power of the Holy Spirit. All right, now think about all the crazy we just talked through in the lineage of Christ. And this apologetic idea of, it has to be true because it's so ridiculous. In some ways, that explains this. Why wouldn't this be true if all of this was true? And we have now this incredibly, incredibly bold claim coming from the Bible that says, Jesus was born of a virgin. Now, I always like to think about this, um, It's just a fascinating thing to me because when I read the Bible, I think of it from the human side, right? So imagine for a second, men, this will be easier for you. Imagine for a second your beautiful fiance comes up to you and says, honey, I'm pregnant. And you're like, "Uh, excuse me, (laughs) that can't be. And then your fiance says, no, God did it. (laughs) Yeah, how are you going to react to that? Ladies, how are you going to handle that conversation? How are you going to walk up to your fiancé and say, well, I'm pregnant. God did it. It's a challenge, right? These are real challenges that were faced by Mary and Joseph. And there's a beauty here that we see as we move into Joseph himself, where he says, Joseph, to whom she was engaged, was a righteous man and did not want to disgrace her publicly, so he decided to break the engagement quietly. All right, guys, talk to you for a second. Would you have done that? Would you have tried to break the engagement quietly? You had every right to slander her, to have her cast out and thrown out of a village. Would you have handled it with grace? It's tough. Now go back to your 18-year-old self. It gets worse, at least for me. It's tough. Everything I need to know about Joseph... I can find right here in that passage. He was a good man. He was a very good man. He had every opportunity in front of him to do mean, hateful things that everyone would have said, hey, dude, you're justified. I get it. And he didn't. He came at it quietly, and he was a righteous man. And then, the angel of the Lord steps in. As he considered this, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, said, Joseph, son of David... Do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child within her was conceived by the Holy Spirit, and she will have a son, and you will name him Jesus, for you will save his people from his sins. I love this. Do not be afraid. Don't be afraid of other people yelling at you. Don't be afraid of what might happen with Mary. Don't be afraid of what your parents will say or what your town's going to say. Don't be afraid I've got your back. This is bigger than you. All of this occurred to fulfill the Lord's message through his prophet. Look, the virgin will conceive a child, she will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. And when Joseph woke up, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded and took Mary as his wife, but he did not have relations with her until her son was born, and Joseph named him Jesus. There's an important little nuance to this. Joseph obeyed. He not only listened, he obeyed. The angel of the Lord commanded him. We all have a choice, guys. We can hear without obeying. There are lots of people, I've been very guilty of this through most of my life, where I hear somebody say what I should do or what I need to do, and then I just don't do it at all. I disregard it or whatever. Matthew 7, Jesus says, Anyone who is wise will listen and follow me. There is a level of obedience that is required here. So when you think about your own faith journey, listen, you know, take in the word of God, be present, be active, worship, all those things, but then jump in and actually exercise your faith in it. So as we wrap up, I've got seven ways that we can have this strong beginning, like Jesus said, from his lineage, from people in our lives that we can look to, but specifically here in these characters from the Bible. Number one. Know where you came from. Maybe you came from a really powerful, really excellent faith background, or maybe you are starting one. That may change how you do certain things. I know that I can rely on people in my family lineage to pray for me. That's huge. Maybe you don't have that opportunity, and if not, I'm sorry. But there's also people who would love to pray for you. And so be that person who can change things. Number two, faithfulness to God is of utmost importance. Abraham's faith was tested on the mountain with Isaac. And he was ultimately obedient. Stand firm for God. Remain obedient even when it doesn't make sense. Because there's going to be times where it doesn't make sense. Number three, I think we can all agree on this. Our plans often are not God's plans. Amen? (laughs) Jacob loved Rachel more than Leah. And yet it was Leah that the lineage of Jesus came from. Number four, God uses broken people. Judah wasn't perfect. Judah was far from perfect, and neither was David. Just because we're not perfect doesn't mean that God won't use you for amazing, amazing things. Number five, failure isn't final. I love that. Thank goodness. I would have been ruined at like day one. Okay, David's failures were not final for him. Your failures are not final. If you run into stuff, if you give in to sin or temptation, don't let that be final for you. Repent, move forward. Number six, following God will place us in tough spots. <laughs> Mary had to tell her fiance she was pregnant. That is a bad conversation no matter how you shake it. Whether it's from the Lord or for somebody else, it's tough. And then Joseph had to decide to remain with Mary. There's a powerful point to that. It's a tough position to be in. Simply because we are Christians, we're going to be placed in tough positions just because we believe in Christ, okay? And finally, number seven, life takes both hearing and obedience. Joseph heard the words of the angel, but then he had to still sit and obey. He had to make that choice. So as we wrap up this first chapter of the book of Matthew, we've kind of taken this overview, taken this slight look at the lineage of Christ. We've got a lot more ahead of us here next week. And so I pray that you will have a blessed week. I pray that you'll jump into the word a little bit. If there's something that stood out to you, get at it. It's good. Will you please join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, Lord. We thank you that it's impactful, that it's powerful, that it changes us, and that it moves us in a mighty way. Lord, we make no apologies for the Bible. We make no apologies for the word that you bring to us. And, Lord, we pray that if there's something in our hearts that stands against your word, that you would change us and not it. And so, Lord, we are grateful for all that you give, all that you take, all that you supply and provide. And we pray this all in the mighty name of Jesus. And all God's people said, amen. Amen.